Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, and today it is my pleasure to have as my guest, Rosemary Keevil. Rosemary Keevil is a journalist and the author of The Art of Losing It, a memoir of grief and addiction. She has been a TV news reporter, a current affairs radio show host, and managing editor of a professional women's magazine. She has a master's degree in journalism and is currently working on her second book, From Grief to Addiction to Relief, which is coincidentally or not coincidentally how we first crossed paths. Rosemary lives in Whistler, British Columbia, Canada, with her partner and her two sheepadoodles. And I've never seen a sheepadoodle before, but um, uh, I've, I've seen a labradoodle. I don't know if that counts, but anyway, Rosemary, welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am very happy to have you on today. I'm pleased to be here, and I can guarantee that sheepadoodles are very cute. Yes, if they're as cute or cute as cute or cuter than Labradoodles, we're in good shape. So all those, all those darn doodles, all those darn doodles. Well, today we're going to talk primarily about your your memoir, The Art of Losing It, um, and also we're going to talk about later in the podcast about your recent project, the book project that you have going on. So, um, whenever you're ready, we'll get to the questions. I'm ready. All right. So first of all, please tell our listeners, Rosemary, about what The Art of Losing It is about. Well, when I was uh, 36 years old, uh, married with two young girls, my husband got diagnosed with very aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and was given less than one year to live. At the same time, uh, he was 41 years old. At the same time, my 41-year-old brother was diagnosed with AIDS and he was gay and it was 1991. So uh, it was a death sentence. He had probably a year or so to live himself. They were diagnosed within two weeks of each other. And I was the only uh, caregiver for my brother because our family actually lived back east in Toronto. So I was responsible for care of both my husband and my brother and had these two little girls. So um, needless to say, I was in crisis management for this uh, entire time. Uh, and my husband lasted till September. That was February that he was diagnosed. And my brother lasted another six months after that. Uh, so obviously it was a, a very, very, very difficult, challenging time during when they were dying as well as afterwards. And I managed to keep myself together, whatever that meant. <laughs> For for about six years, meaning I didn't venture into drugs and alcohol. I was just running on adrenaline. And then one night I had a fateful evening with a person who's ended up in the book being called Mr. Wrong, who brought cocaine to me. And that was the answer to all my problems. And that began my spiral down for six years. I was what they call a high-functioning alcoholic, which 
or alc- and drug addict, but I always find that a kind of an interesting term because, sure, I was high functioning. I was taking the kids to school. I was going to work. I never went to work high, but I did drive the kids not straight. And so, how is that high functioning? But whatever, I was able to hold a job. And so that lasted six years. And then I was driving the children, drunk and high. I blacked out. I did not have an accident. This was divine intervention. And this was my rock bottom. And this was a gift from above. This was, a, this was my um, gift of desperation. This was it. I realized I couldn't do this any, for, any longer. What happened after that accident was, that lack, that lack of an accident, was I got a, a letter from the uh, local police that uh, someone had seen me driving on the Upper Levers Highway erratically. So I was reported, but there wasn't arrested or anything, but it was a report to the police that I was driving erratically. Uh, so that was pretty scary. So I went just to see a therapist. She was actually a spiritual counselor, and I told her what I had done. I said I drove them drunk and high, and I blacked out, and I didn't have an accident. I said, "What do you, do you think I need a spiritual retreat?" And she said, "Rosemary, what about rehab?" Oh, you think? So, uh, so she got me into rehab, and that was in two thousand and two, and so I've been clean and sober ever since. And um, actually, once I'd been clean and sober for a while, I realized I had a story to tell. And I'm a journalist. Writing is what I do. So I decided to document it. And for those listeners out there, The Art of Losing It is is just really a brilliant memoir. You really highlight very honestly and in a raw sense. And also with with some humor interspersed. I mean, it's got a little bit of everything to, to document your journey. Um, it's just a great book. If you really want to understand the, the impact of addiction on an individual and their families and what, it, what the, the process of recovery is like. And I can share with you, Rosemary, that I've suggested your book in my impact of addiction and children and families class uh, at Utica University. Well, I appreciate you saying that because one thing I do say is, is if my book acts as a resource for one person, then I feel like I've been a success. So if you actually use it as a resource. I'm flattered and thrilled that, um, I mean, I feel like I'm a success, basically, if I can reach somebody. And, and it is. That, that book is going to have a tremendous impact on anybody who reads it, even if they haven't gone through their own addiction challenges or if they've gone through other challenges that are, you know, non-addiction related, that book's going to have something that they can, they can hang on to. So, um and one of the things that as I was listening to you, it almost like that blackout was the catalyst for a spiritual awakening that you had that was telling you that what I'm doing and how I'm doing it isn't going to work. I need something more. Oh, absolutely. And I thought it was a spiritual retreat. Uh, it wasn't as clear to me that I needed to get uh, clean and sober. But, but that was the beginning of the path. Um, well, it was the path. There I was, and I was clean and sober as the moment I got to my rehab. I hadn't another drink or, or drug since then. So that was the beginning. That was the catalyst. You're right. How did the pain and grief from the deaths of your brother and husband 
contribute to the progression or development of your drug addiction? Well, um, as I said, I was able to stay free of the drugs and alcohol for a good six years. And when I was away uh, one year after I got sober in the spring of 2003, I took my daughters, who were 13 and 15 at the time, to Betty Ford to the one-week-long family program. And um, well, it was quite revealing um, when we were there to find out uh, what exactly <laughs> had been going on. And there was a lecture, uh, which was quite revealing to me. Uh, one of the scenarios of people with addiction and alcohol problems, one of the scenarios is a, a person who had alcoholism in the family, like a parent was alcoholic, my father was alcoholic, can go through their whole life. And then sometimes, sometime in their late 30s, which is when I, where it was when I got um well, I have my tragedy. Some tragedy strikes, and then within six years, they go into drugs and alcohol. And this was my scenario. This is exactly what happened to me. Was I was be I was able to in my twenties. I was interested in some recreational drugs and some marijuana, and I could never say no to a final toke. But I never crossed the line. And then when I got married, um, my husband wasn't into drugs at all. He was into fine wines. So we used to joke when we had a bad day, it would be a Batard Maltrachet kind of day. Uh, just have a couple of drinks of wine to, to take the edge off, but that was it. Um, but so so what happened with me is that this was my scenario. I was able to keep my life together until I had this tragedy and I could still keep it together for six years. But then this was my scenario. Apparently it's not that unusual. You had two very life-altering losses within a short period of time. I mean, losing your husband at a young age and then your brother. I've had another guest on the, on the podcast about sibling grief, and we talk about, in many cases, how sibling grief isn't acknowledged as much as it should be because everybody's concerned about the parents of the child. A lot of times, individuals forget that siblings had their own unique relationship. So I was looking and trying to put myself in your shoes and I said, wow, I mean, she went through two very life-altering losses within a short period of time. And then based on your history of alcoholism in the family, I could see where the coping mechanism would have been substance use. Absolutely. I was a goner. Well, you were, but now you're, you're not a goner anymore. You're right on the road to recovery. Yeah. Congratulations on over 21 years of sobriety. I think that's fabulous. Thank you. And I, I guess what really compounded the problem was I had two little girls, two children, two young children. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I've learned, you know, being in the addictions field as I was for 27 years, is that even though alcoholism is a stigmatized disease, there's a difference with how it's perceived for both men and women. With women, it's almost like tied into a woman's identity, is that if they're an alcoholic, they're a bad mother, they're a bad lover, they're a bad provider. And that, I think, adds to the stigmatization and also, I think, for the desire for many women to go underground and not come forward because of what they're, they're looking at, stigmatization compounded exponentially. Indeed. Like, you're a mother. You shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And in reality, I tell my students, alcoholism, substance abuse disorder, uh, other, other drug uh, dependency, 
It's an equal opportunity disease. It strikes equally across cultures, across gender, doesn't matter. So how did you help your children deal with their grief? Yeah, and this is a, a really important uh, area. When, when, they, when their father was sick, I, darn, darn it all, I was going to figure out how I was going to help these kids. I'm a researcher. I went to the bookstore and I got all these books. I went to the counter and like all these books on how to help children and about dealing with death. And the woman looks at the books and she looks at me and she goes, do you work in the palliative care unit at the hospital? No, actually, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't very frank with her, but it, I just had so many books. I did so much work and I learned um, a number of things. Children need an outlet. They need to be able to talk about their, um, they don't even know that their feelings. They need to talk about what, what's going on. They need to talk about the person who's dying or who has died and their caregivers, the teachers, the other um grandparents, whoever's looking after the kids, need to know to, to be able to help draw the kids out, help them talk, even draw or write if they're old enough. Um, what's also important is to be honest. We don't need to give them all the information, but we need to be honest about it. We don't. We can't say that, that this person's going to sleep or we're losing them. They're dying and you're not going to see them again. Different ages understand or don't understand finality. Um, in, in different ways. And I can give a couple of examples of that. So they were two and four and a half when their father was sick. And uh, he was clearly, I mean, he wasn't, he was dying and he was going in and out of the hospital and he wasn't himself. It wasn't normal. But there's a passage in the book I'm going to read about, um, about the, what happened when he was at the house and the ambulance was coming to the house to take him away to die. He was going to the hospital to die. Um, so th that's another story, but I'll just read this part of it for you. Willow is five here and Dixie is two. Will Willow and Dixie are looking out the front window as the ambulance pulls into the driveway. Mesmerized by the big white and red vehicle with a red light on top, which is not flashing, that has come to take their daddy away. My mother instincts make me desperately want to shelter them from all of this, but I can't. I can't cushion them from this harsh reality. I watch them watch the ambulance attendants readying the gurney. I see two little girls grappling with a tangle of new emotions, and I know that their innocence will shield them for only so long. This is something none of us can escape from, and it will leave an indelible mark on our souls. It's almost as difficult watching them flounder as it is watching my husband die. What must this be like for their little two-year-old and five-year-old minds and hearts? What are they thinking? As if she hears my ponderings, Wella looks up at me and says, is daddy going to die today? So that's an excerpt from the book and it just always stabs at my heart when I think about that and when I read that. I mean, what do you say to a five-year-old when she asks you if her daddy's going to die today? So she was old enough to start understanding. At five, they can start understanding finality, but certainly at three, they can't. And um, after he, so he died in September, and then uh, my other daughter turned three in December, and we were out at a grocery store. We were at the grocery store buying jam in the jam aisle or something, and there's a woman beside us also shopping. And this is 
my daughter's third birthday. It's all on her birthday. And she looks up at this woman and she says, it's my birthday and my daddy's dead, dead, dead. So the poor woman in the supermarket. Um, but this is how um, a parent has to deal with it with these children during these certain ages. And each, each stage that they go through, they have to process the grief differently. And hopefully they will have the opportunity later as they grow. Um, they're given the opportunity or they take the opportunity to process it. Um, and hopefully with therapists, I believe in therapists um, and good ones. So they had to continue as they grew older, they had to continue to process it. But I, I as, as distracted as I was with my own grief, I did try to help them through it. Here I ended up self-destructing. So, you know, what, what struck me was the, the powerlessness you felt was that you couldn't protect your children from what was going on with your husband. And I, I felt that same type of powerlessness with, with my daughter, Janine, is that, you know, I watched her uh, die very painful death from cancer and I could not do anything to prevent it. And I, I, that sense of powerlessness really, really got me and, and I just kept ruminating over it because I couldn't do anything. And I, 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 realized, I realized that I did the best I could given the hand of cards that was dealt to me. But I'm also glad that you mentioned that children do process grief differently as they get older. Because as they progress through developmental stages, their meaning of death becomes different and the significance of the loss becomes different. And they will process it according to what they're going through at that particular developmental stage. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that's an important point to remember for families who may have been in the same situation as you were. And the children need to be given those opportunities to do that at each stage as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you hit all the high points with your answer. That's exactly, you know, what I would have wanted to emphasize. One of the things I loved about your book I loved many things about your book, but one of the things I loved is how you had your chapters structured. Each chapter was a title of a song, and I really appreciated that. Well, um, there was one particular album, Van Morrison's Avalon Sunset, which has a, a approximately 10 tracks, and eight of them were just so relevant to what was going on that that whole album was like our soundtrack uh, and he would listen to this ad time and um, I was dearest my husband left me uh, a journal it was his journal of when he was dying mm -hmm. and, he, and he says at the beginning of it I was trying to go with going through my 1986 car insurance files for Rosemary so that things would be easier. Then I realized maybe a documentation of my emotion would be a little bit more helpful. So he, he writes, I'm just going to read from his um, couple of things about the songs that he says. He says, this album, Avalon Sunset, has also got rays of hope in its words, which again seemed to hit me as though written for me specifically. And from contacting my angel, the words are, I've been on a journey up the mountainside and I drank the water from the stream. It was pure, pure water, and I got completely healed. And then the words from these are the days. These are the days of the endless summer, and it was summer when he was dying. These are the days, the time is now. There is no part, there's no past, there is no future. 
It's only here. It's only now. These are the days now that we must savor. You must enjoy as we can. These are the days that will last forever. You've got to hold them in your heart. So this album is just fraught with all these really relevant sayings and um, music is emotional and moving anyway. And uh, you had Van Morrison speaking to him directly <laughs> was pretty powerful and um, and comforting. He would, we'd listen to it in bed uh, together at night. It was comforting hearing those words from Van Morrison talking to you directly. So that would, that is the, the major way that music played a role uh, uh, was that album. It was, um, it signified his dying and um, songs like um, I'd love to write another song while well, he was a guitarist and, and, and a music writer and his fingers couldn't, because of the drugs and things, he couldn't use his fingers. So he couldn't um, play the guitar anymore. So he couldn't write another song. Um, have I told you lately that I love you? <laughs> it's just, it's remarkable. Where are the song titles I have? Uh, yeah, I'm tired, Joy Boy. It was excellent because he was tired all the time. And when will they ever learn to live in love? He just was speaking directly to my husband with that album on Sunset. It's a beautiful, poignant album for anyone going through loss. I highly recommend it. I'll have to check that out myself at, at some point. And for me, the album that that really I, I resonated with about a year or so after Janine transitioned was Warren Zevon, The Wind. He wrote that when he was dying. Um, and he had lung cancer. He never smoked from what I understood. He had a, a, an all-star cast and every song on that album spoke to me, particularly the last one, Keep Me Out Your Heart for a While. That was the last song, concluding song of the album. And whatever I think of all of our loved ones who have transitioned before me, that's where I keep them. Music can help us get in touch with our emotions. It can help us provide clarity for our emotions. It can help, it can even provide a path for us moving forward. Um, if we al allow music to, to have that type of effect on us. Getting back to your book, in chapter 18 of your book, you write, when I returned from rehab, our home was in a state of anarchy. 28 days sober, I am trying to enforce rules I have n never before, and my 13 and 15-year-old daughters are rebelling. What do you believe contributed to their reaction? Well, um, you would think, when their mother finally got clean and sober, that things would be pretty rosy. Um, but um, all of a sudden, I had rules, I had curfews, and, and it, things were in more chaos than they had been in before. And I remember one of them saying one point, I, I, just, I just wish you'd never got sober. So imagine what that was like for a mother who just got sober. Um, but what I learned... Um, and this what I learned at the, at the Betty Ford that week was that um, it's a very typical scenario in the family systems theory is that my daughters and I were in a dysfunctional equilibrium. And that doesn't mean that things were not chaotic. Things were very chaotic. But what was going on in that equilibrium was that people's reactions weren't necessarily functional or not chaotic, they were predictable. So you throw sobriety into that mix 
And all of a sudden, my behavior is totally unpredictable. And because of that, then their behavior becomes unpredictable. Um, so the reactions of the family members is now unpredictable. So now it was a dysfunctional, non-equilibrium. Uh, so uh, what we were faced with, what we had to do was just break down all the all the dysfunctional coping mechanisms that we have, and then that we creates complete chaos when you break them down. And then we just had to start building new ones. And this is a process and it takes a long time and it takes work and it takes patience and it takes therapy. And, um, it's, it, um, it's not easy, uh, but it was easier, but it was helpful to understand that that's what was going on. That's why it was so chaotic is that we were in a dysfunctional equi equilibrium and all of a sudden we were still dysfunctional, but it wasn't the equilibrium anymore because things were so unpredictable. Um, so we had to do a lot of work and, and it's a process and I, the process never really ends. And, uh, as I like to say, we're a work in progress now that my daughters are grown and good marriages and have good careers. So I've done something right. They've done something right. Um, but we're still a work in progress. <laughs> it's a process. So, uh, this is this is what it was like when I got sober. It was not easy, and uh, as much as one would like to think it's being so great when someone finally gets sober. That part of the book really struck me because it it just illustrates that you your family was operating under a set of rules that were based on maintaining balance around a dysfunctional set of dynamics. That when you wanted to come back and reassume re the mother role and begin to set rules and, and to become a mother again, it was like, it was chaos because this, these were a different set of rules that the family system didn't have a chance to to rebalance around. And like you said, it is a process. It's a gradual process of, of basically introducing families to a new reality and a new set of rules once one of the members becomes sober because it changes the roles, it changes the dynamic, and it changes the, it changes the whole patterns of communication. You just try to break through that all at once. It's just, uh, it's going to cause chaos and crisis for, for that family. I had actually hadn't had any rules. And then realizing all of a sudden I needed to get curfews and they didn't make any sense to them because, well, what's a curfew? What's a rule? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just, mm -hmm. So I was, I was learning. I had a big learning curve. And I, I think, as you mentioned, we are all works in progress, regardless of the path we walk, regardless of the challenges. I'm going to be a work in progress until the day I transition from this life. So mm -hmm. from your perception, how does addiction negatively impact the family, both in the short and the long term? Well, um, it's going on over how, how it, um, happened as I was drinking and as, and as I was getting sober, what happened, both were chaotic. Um, but in the long term, so here I am, my father's alcoholic, I'm alcoholic and drug addict. And here are these two girls exposed to my drinking and my sobriety. So the writing's on the wall, the poor things. So, so both of them are now are have been in AA and they are both clean and sober for over ten years. 
probably more like 15 years, both of them. What I was able to do to contribute to that was, yes, they witnessed what children should not witness. Um, I can't do anything about that, except what I could do was walk the walk. So when they started getting into trouble with drugs and alcohol, they saw there was an option. They saw what boot they could go. They saw that they were, that, this, that their mother got sober. And this is how they did it. This is how she did it. So I can do it too. So I was able to give them an example of how to get clean and sober. So as unfortunately is genetic and also, I mean, there's a genetic element to it mm-hmm. and not necessarily completely genetic at all, but there's a genetic yeah. element which can trigger. And so there's, they had all the writings on the wall, the poor things that their grandfather was alcoholic, their mother was alcoholic, and they witnessed a very chaotic, they had trauma as a, a young age, their father and then their mother completely losing it. They had a lot of trauma. So but I'm very proud of them. They were able to clean up sober themselves. But I mean, it was, it was fairly rocky. I must say, and I haven't documented their their um, journeys because that's not my, they're not lined to document. But um, you can imagine. I mean, I was finding clean and sober, and when when they when they were going through their addictions, I was so grateful every single day that I was clean and sober. And what would not have been like if I wasn't clean and sober? You have been sober for over twenty one years. And again, congratulations for that. What has been the keys to your success? Well, um, it's not for everybody, but um, AA to me is a remarkable organization, helps so many people, and it is what it's the reason I got sober and the reason I stayed sober. And as I say, I don't. It's not necessarily for everybody, but those twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they are they are so useful to anybody, not even necessarily with a drug or addiction problem. They force you to look at your side of the street. I mean, all this BS that was that's going on in your life, that's going on in your life. What's your role in that? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's really important. And people don't have trouble having that humility that you maybe I have something to do with that. And the 12 steps really help, uh, help you clean up your own side, at least look at your own side of the street and um, look at those people you've harmed and make amends to them uh, and uh, clean up your act and um, do living amends. With my children, it, I, I had to do a living amends with them uh, as well as other people in my life I had to make amends to. And then well, I found out when I was making amends to people Sometimes I'd have to say I'm sorry for my role in it. So I think there's just elements of the program that are really useful for anybody, whether you have an addiction or alcohol problem or not. There are elements to it that are very useful. Um, dealing with resentments, mm-hmm. resentments are just a killer, um, and, and just fester and cause so many problems in relationships. My current relationship, I'm proud to say that I don't let these resentments fester. We just we just get them to the surface right away, and then we laugh. <laughs> you have to laugh. Yes, you yes you do. Um, bef- you have to laugh because sometimes that prevents you from crying. So, you exactly, know, exactly. Just... Exactly. If I weren't laughing, I'd be crying. 
That's exactly. it. That's it. And I took that same attitude, particularly when I worked in the field of addictions, because I heard so many really heart-wrenching stories and, and troubling stories that, um, you know, there are days I just had to laugh or else I, I would have been crying. Please give our listeners one or two takeaways from your life path that can help them navigate their own challenges. Well, um, the, the biggest one, and in fact, it's two, when there's sort of part and parcel, is acceptance. And the law of acceptance is the only way past it is through it. Um, as we know, the, the five stages of grief, and they're not linear, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and now there's meaning. But this is acceptance, um, and um, with grief, we need to accept that it's process, that it's exhausting. We need to be able to rest. We need to be able to cry. We need to be able to break down. So we can't fight it. And self-care is important. And as I've mentioned, therapists before, if they work for you, that's helpful. I um, like to say that grief, when you're losing a loved one, it makes a ragged hole in your soul. And as time goes on, the hole that never goes away, but the ragged edges get a little bit soft. So we have to be able to accept that it's work. Grieving is work. It's hard work. And the only way to pass it is through it. Now, I didn't grieve until I got sober, and at which point I learned things that it was time that I had to do it. But then I was also dealing with my emotions around addiction. I had to accept the fact that I had to accept my guilt and my shame of the way I bothered my children. And I had to understand why I was numbing myself. Now, I was numbing myself because of extreme sadness, the loss of my husband, extreme stress, mothering two girls who just lost their father. Um, so I had to feel those emotions and accept those emotions. And I had to go through the steps and understand my resentment, what I said, and clean up my side of the street. But all of that is going through it. The only person is through it. And I think that's a really, really important lesson. I will never lose the guilt. I mean, I'll the girls. I have to accept that. I have acceptance. It's what I'm doing about it now that matters today. That's the big message for me. Is, is the acceptance, the only way to pass it through it, you have to live it, you have to feel it. It doesn't go away completely ever. Often will come back and then you have to honor it and then not try to bury it and just look forward and say, okay, what do I do about this today? Yes, what, what can I learn from the experience? What can I learn about my grief resurfacing? What can I learn about even specific relapse triggers? What can it teach me about myself? And I think the past is always going to come back in some form to inform us of what we need to do in the presence. But it's accepting, it's accepting that we did what we did based on what we knew at that particular time. And it isn't right or wrong. It's just this is, this is how we did it. And now it's a matter of looking at that, learning from it, um, so thank you for that. Those are two very, I think, important lessons that we can we can take away from from your path. So thank you again for that, Rosemary.
Tell us about your latest book project, From Grief to Addiction to Relief and What Inspired It. Well, um, I, I did want to um, move forward with another book. I am a journalist. I do research. and try to do fiction. I took a fiction writing course, and my daughter, who's a writer, read my first story, and she said, Mom, this isn't fiction. This is true. But I don't think I've been a journalist for too long. Um, so I thought that it would be useful um, to follow this path of people who knew as a loved one who turned to addiction. I am a manuscript consultant, and it was called from grief to addiction. She said, maybe you need to ground it off, Rosemary. That's <laughs> it's such a negative thing. So grief to addiction to relief. So um, I'm, I'm just looking into that further. My memoir was came a, became a resource for some people. I'm hoping it will be a resource as well that people um, experience this or no loved ones who are experiencing this type of experience in terms of losing a loved one and, and ending up in addiction. Well, I'm hoping that that will actually reach some people and become a resource. And so that's this project I'm working on now and the interviews and doing the, um, the research. I have a manuscript consultant that keeps me accountable. We always have to have somebody to keep us accountable. And I guess for writers, it's, it is a manuscript consultant. If this project is half as good as the art of losing it, it's going to be a, a very impactful work. And I'm looking forward to, the, to seeing the final product when it comes out, Rosemary. Thank you very much. So with that, one last question before we, we wrap up. Your contact information, as far as your social media links, um, website, are going to be in the show notes. But how can individuals purchase a copy of The Art of Losing It? And is there any other way to contact if they want to find out more about your work? Well, um, you can get the book on Amazon. And um, I think in the contact information, my website is there. But um, I'm happy to give out my email address. The website has a contact room that the publisher but you contact me directly that way. So it's rosemary88 at me.com. So that would be a way to contact me directly. I'll make sure that all goes in the program notes as well. But Rosemary, I just wanted to thank you for a very enlightening and, and great conversation today. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Well, it was very, very pleasurable. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be on your program. The podcast is excellent. I really hate it. Appreciate it listening to it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for your kind words about the podcast. And with that, that is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.